With yields on fixed income investments sitting near record lows, investors are looking for ways to boost returns. The challenge? Most traditional investment options offering higher returns often require taking on more equity risk. Enter private credit. Get access to potentially higher returns, historically tested stability, and added diversification typically reserved for institutional investors. MD Platinum Global Private Credit Pool. Bond-like stability, equity-like returns. Visit md.ca forward slash private dash credit for more information. Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult the product monograph at gsk.ca slash Shingrix slash PM for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Anti-vaccine protests, such as the one at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles back in January of this year, are not new. There have been many such protests throughout history, and one can't help but draw parallels between historical protests and the ones happening now during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jonathan Berman, a physiologist at the New York Institute of Technology Medical School and a science educator. He's joining me today to talk about one particular protest that turned violent, the Montreal vaccine riot of 1885. Jonathan is the author of a CMAJ Humanities article on anti-vaccine sentiment during a smallpox outbreak. I reached him in Arkansas. Hello, Jonathan. Uh, How are you? Uh, Not bad. How are you doing? Uh, Good. Well, just before we get going into the the world of vaccines and smallpox, can you tell me a little bit about your work and your area of study? Sure. And it might seem odd, but I'm a physiologist, a PhD physiologist, so not a physician or a historian. My primary area of study is how the kidney handles sodium and the effects on hypertension. So very different from vaccine resistance movements. Yeah, no kidding. I sort of caught my attention. It got me curious. Um, what got you interested in vaccine resistance movements? I've So I've always been following that story for at least 15 years um, in the news and as people responded to it. And about four or five years ago, I was involved in leading uh, a protest called the March for Science. And one of the, the things I observed in that was a number of people who identified themselves as pro-science, whatever that means, but then would also make statements that indicated to me that they were anti-vaccine. It was surprising to me that someone could identify as pro-science and anti-vaccine. And so I did kind of a deep dive researching, reading every publication, every book I could find, trying to understand that, and that turned into a book. That's sort of what led me to CMAJ. So in your CMAJ paper, you take us back to a time when smallpox was a massive health concern globally. And before we unpack what has become known as the 1885 Montreal vaccine riot, could you talk about smallpox and its relevance to life in the 1800s? So at the time, I would expect someone probably thought about smallpox the way we would think about something like whooping cough. 
Uh, we know that it still exists, but probably not a part of our daily lives for most people anymore, largely through the discovery and use of vaccination in the late part of the 18th century. Uh, so there were still outbreaks of smallpox in 1885, and it could be a very devastating disease. The mortality rate varied, but above 10% uh, and often left survivors with debilitating scars, and it was highly contagious. So even in 1885, there was still a lot of disagreement about the nature of disease. So there were theoretical questions about how smallpox works, and it had been discovered that smallpox could transmit person to person. But at the time, miasma theory of disease was still very common. Existence of viruses was not yet known. So a lot of the, the theoretical biology was not yet in place to understand smallpox. You just alluded to people already, even though they didn't know what caused smallpox, they kind of knew that the smallpox vaccination might work. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So smallpox vaccination had been studied and the, the, the field of statistics was new and it didn't have the same tools we have now but attempts had been made to use statistics to study it. And it was fairly straightforward to observe that you could vaccinate someone with, with cowpox or with vaccine lymph and then uh, attempt to, to give them smallpox and they wouldn't get it. So what was vaccine lymph? So it came from a variety of sources. Uh, originally cowpox virus in the same family to smallpox um, pustules would be burst with a lancet, um, and the material, the, the pus, would be taken and uh, prepared or saved, called vaccine lymph. And then over time, that might be transmitted from person to person. So you might give cowpox to one person and then take some of that cowpox from their pustule and move it on to the next person. Sure. So this was the time well before refrigeration was available. So I, I, I'm imagining um, that someone would come to the house, say, if you had someone who was, had pustules, and, and, that, and that would be the moment of opportunity to vaccinate. Is that how it worked? So it, there were a lot of problems with preserving vaccine lymph. So there might be some available at a given time because um, there was cowpox um, that occurred, or horsepox was used sometimes. Uh, and there were attempts to preserve it through doing things like taking a silk thread and impregnating it with uh, lymph and then drying it. And a lot of these methods were unreliable, which meant that sometimes when vaccination was needed, they weren't able to produce uh, a reliable source of vaccine. In your studies of smallpox vaccination, did you get a sense of the mechanics of, of it? For example, were there big clinics where people would line up around the block? I'm curious how it rolled out. My understanding is it was done in a variety of ways. Um, there were vials of vaccine lymph at, at one point that were eventually prepared. So you would have a glass vial with lymph and then you would go to your primary care physician or the equivalent back then. And at certain times they might have vaccine lymph available. And if they had enough patients who wanted to be vaccinated, they might um, vaccinate them and then transfer lymph from one patient to another to keep sort of keep the culture going of cowpox. Now, part of what led to 
these tensions in 1885 was a shift in power, the municipal government trying to become the people who uh, did vaccination and setting up centralized methods of recording vaccination, performing vaccination, and sort of taking that relationship between the physician and the patient away from the physician. And so that's one of the, I think, one of the important underlying factors in what led to the the riots. That's fascinating. And so that brings us back to the story. And I want to just recap for our listeners who have not read the article. So tell us a little bit about what happened in Montreal in 1885 and a bit of the backstory around, first of all, the outbreak and, and then what happened leading up to the, to the riots themselves. Right. So this has been described in, you know, in a lot of detail by, by other authors, but in brief, there was an outbreak of smallpox going on in Montreal. It had been carried there by a railroad conductor and there was supposed to be a special clinic for smallpox patients, but it was closed because there weren't enough smallpox patients. So he was admitted to uh, to a regular hospital and hit through his bedding, it spread to the city and got out of control. And then there was a series of mistakes with potentially contaminated vaccine and um, low vaccination rates and miscommunications. And so by September of that year, there were a lot of tensions and that tied into a, a great deal of social inequity between overall wealthier Anglophone, largely Protestant population and the Francophone, largely Catholic population. And just like wealth inequalities today can lead to very different health outcomes, the Francophone community was much more affected by smallpox in this outbreak. So a lot of anti-vaccine sentiment developed that was tied into tensions that already existed along class lines and religious lines and language lines. And that eventually spilled over into a riot when um, there was talk of vaccination becoming mandatory. And in that riot, there was a lot of property damage and no one was killed, but some people were injured. And so that is interesting to me because of of what it might illustrate to us today about what situations might lead to uh, violent protest or to the most vitriolic protest in terms of COVID-19 vaccination. So it sounds like there were tensions already in Montreal, um, like you said, that had been brewing. And then this mandatory, the, even the rumor of a mandatory vaccination policy, I suppose, was enough to say that was like the last straw. That sparked the whole thing. So have you read about what it was in particular that led anti-vaxxers to resist the public health laws? In other words, was it were they, were they worried about contaminated vaccines? Um, were they worried about specific things? Or was it just a general mistrust of, of the government? So I think there's always two things going on when you look at anti-vaccine movements. There are stated justifications, and then there are the psychological, social, emotional underlying reasons that they're anti-vaccine. So 
I don't think you dismiss the stated reasons outright, but I think we also have to understand the the other reasons. So the stated reasons involve um, things like questioning the science that was done on vaccines at the time, um, concerns that vaccines might cause injuries um, to people. So as I described, this was not a very sanitary process at the time. There were concerns about secondary infections. And so people would would claim that um, this was a burden that was being imposed on the poor, that it was harmful to people. There would be statistical arguments that attempted to place doubt on the effectiveness of vaccination or to point out instances where someone had been vaccinated but got smallpox anyway. So what I think of as the deeper reasons have a lot to do with concerns about personal medical autonomy. Um, So being able to make choices for oneself about one's health, concerns about who is making those medical decisions. So to a degree, there's mistrust of government and mistrust of uh, centralized medical decision-making. And then there's also fears about polluting oneself with outside substances and fears of losing control over one's health. So I think we see similar fears at play today. You know, people who are choosing not to wear a mask, um, I think, likely feel that they at least have made a choice. And so I think that there's quite a bit going on in terms of justification versus actual reason. So you've given this a lot of thought. And, and I mean, when you, when you look at people who have various responses to public health policies today, do you think that vaccine protesters are the same people who protest curfews and mask mandates and lockdowns? Or do you think that they're, it's a more subtle problem where people have so many different reasons and it, that it, you just simply can't lump all those problems together? Well, so to some degree, I think that it's a related phenomenon. So I've seen a lot of people describing it as anti-public health protests as a whole. So instead of anti-vaccine or anti-mask, they lump them together. And you do see anti-vaccine signs at anti-mask protests. You do see combined protests. And you've seen now people who've been studying these groups finding significant overlap between people with vaccine hesitancy and anti-mask groups. I think there may be people who are more concerned about one or the other, but in large part, I do think there are deep similarities between those viewpoints and the the rise of anti-mask sentiment and anti-lockdown sentiments has given a a new source of potential converts to the anti-vaccine movement. And looking internationally, do you see any differences or, or similarities between, well, you talked about similarities, but, but in particular differences between anti-vaccination groups? So yes, there are um, similarities and yes, there are differences. So similarities, the arguments are often very similar. The things they're protesting are often very similar. The differences of course, are the groups and the, the stated and, and often the underlying reasons for hesitancy. So in the United States, a few years ago, about five years ago, anti-vaccine movement targeted 
the Somali American community uh, in Minnesota um, for, for a misinformation campaign. And there was a drop in vaccination rates that led to a measles outbreak. And in 2019, there was a measles outbreak in an Orthodox Jewish community in New York that had also been targeted by uh, anti-vaccine movement. And those are very different communities and with very different concerns and, and that need to be addressed in different ways um, in terms of, of building trust. But what they share in common is not having the same language necessarily as the surrounding population having a different religion from the surrounding population, um, having a different cultural identity than the surrounding population. So smaller groups are often targeted for anti-vaccine campaigns um, and not being a part of the, not having access to, to maybe the same materials, language as broader population makes it harder to, to reach them with public health messaging. Now, I, I say international, and I, I only talked about America there, but there are there are other examples. Do any stand out? Um, so one, I think, is, is perhaps salient from the early 20th century. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi was anti-vaccine, um, and he wrote quite a bit about it. And I think reading his objections, a lot of it had to do with vaccination being seen as an imposition by the Raj, um, by the, the British rule in India at the time, who were imposing vaccination on the population. And so a lot of his arguments mirrored arguments of British anti-vaccinationists um, and anti-vaccinationists today, but also um, were framed in terms of an outside colonial rule. We also see um, a fair amount of anti-vaccine sentiment in the Middle East, in part driven by, by rumors of sterilization campaigns by the West and by certain actions that have been taken by Western militaries that um, have caused a drop in vaccine confidence. When you mention, you know, we use the term anti-vaccination groups almost as if it's a distinct entity. But as you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm guessing that actually anti-vaccination arguments can be used um, under other umbrellas, almost repackaged as part of a broader group. So so are you talking, when you use, use the term anti-vaccination group, do you mostly mean a group that has taken on the cause to support its larger political aims? For example, uh, Gandhi with colonial concerns. Um, or do you, are you talking about specifically dedicated groups working against vaccination? So there are both. There are groups that produce a lot of the anti-vaccine material on the internet today um, that are uh, very active in organizing protests and uh, paying for uh, the production of materials. I, I hesitate to say educational material, but but pamphlets and things like that. And there's actually a very small number of groups that are funded by a small number of people um, that are involved in that. On the other hand, those groups are, are, have often been successful in convincing social campaigners to allow anti-vaccine sentiment to latch on to other social causes. Um, we saw an example of that over the summer um, and to date this, this is in March 2021, 
last summer with the Black Lives Matter protests, we saw some some well-known anti-vaccine groups going out and, and framing anti-vaccine protests as Black Lives Matter protests um, and attempting to, to sort of hijack those protests to their own ends and make them into something that would benefit their cause. Do you think in-person protests have the same impact as anti-vaccine efforts on social media? So in-person protests reach a different audience. When you're doing a protest, you're essentially doing PR. You're, you're saying, this is what I believe. I want you to hear about it and, and why. And in-person protests tend to be covered by the media more, by traditional media more. Uh, they tend to get different sets of eyes on them. Um, people who are walking down the street and happen to run into them diff- get different attention than, say, a online statement you might make or or a meme you might share. I think only twenty percent of adults, roughly, are on Twitter. You know, probably less than that worldwide. So, if you're on Twitter, there's only so much impact you can have. And if you're if you're in person, like that protest in Los Angeles you're possibly reaching people you're not reaching through your your social media bubble. Now, that being said, I phrased that like social media is the default and in-person is this new innovation. And, and kind of the opposite historically has been true. People have done most of their protesting in person and brochures, pamphlets, um, influence campaigns, and social media is the new development. I think it gives both people interested in, in public health influence and anti-public health influence, new avenues to reach people. So um, if you're designing a public health campaign, I don't think you can ignore those online communities. And it's worth the investment in finding out where people are online and how to reach them online. Well, one thing we do know um, is that a lot of our listeners are physicians. And uh, so I guess this is one way to start thinking about how to reach people in, in the confidence of that doctor-patient relationship. Now, as you mentioned, there, there will always be people who categorically refuse to take vaccines. But some people who fall in the vaccine-hesitant group might be open to having discussions with their healthcare provider about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine or other vaccines. So... First of all, let's get some perspective on this. Um, How many people in North America can be described as vaccine hesitant? Uh, So I don't have like very specific numbers for Canada or the United States or Mexico um, for vaccine hesitancy. We can get estimates, I think, from other numbers. So for measles vaccination, about 90% of children get vaccinated for measles. Um, And of the remaining percentage... I think the majority are people who don't have very good access. So tend to be poorer communities in the U.S. Um, that don't have very good health access. So actually making vaccination more widely available um, would go a lot farther to increasing vaccine uptake in that case than persuading every single anti-vaccine activist. And we've seen over the summer, there were a number of surveys asking who would be ready, willing today to get a coronavirus vaccine. 
And we saw numbers in the 40% range saying, no, I wouldn't be ready to, to get a coronavirus vaccine. Now, we've also seen those numbers going down. So we're starting to see those numbers decline into the 20 or 30% range, um, similar to what we would see with measles. Um, as people in, in people's various communities get vaccinated, as it's seen as more available, as we see millions of people get vaccinated with, with no or little ill effect, that's fairly persuasive, um, especially when you see your aunt on social media um, posting her, her vaccine card or showing off, hey, I got vaccinated, I'm safe now or, or safer now. I think the, the role for a physician, and I say that not as a physician, but I think the role for a physician um, is going to largely be less persuasion in the sense of debate and less in terms of argument and more in terms of gentle nudging. So presenting good information to patients, allowing them to make their own choice, but, but also making it clear um, what the science is and, and why you believe it. And for a lot of people, that will be enough. Some it won't, but you know, it's not the physician's role to make medical decisions for their patient. I think we're past that age of, of paternalism, but it is their role to help guide them to what the best health decision is. That sounds incredibly sensible. Well, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me on. Pleasure. I've been speaking with Professor Jonathan Berman from the New York Institute of Technology Medical School. He covers a lot of what we talked about today in his recent book called Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement. To read the article he wrote for CMAJ, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or Podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.